Douglas Harding died in 2007. Ten years later, at the end of May 2017, several friends recorded some of their memories of Douglas. The first speaker is Colin Oliver, followed by John Hawkins, then Lev Yari, then Catherine Boo, and finally Robin Molesdale. To me, Douglas's character was like a kaleidoscope. And I'd like to tell just one story, which is like a little bit of glass from that kaleidoscope, which says uh, just something about Douglas's humanity. I had the huge good fortune in 1971 to accompany Douglas on a lecture and workshop tour of Canada and the United States. And we were in Toronto, staying with a friend called Patrick out in the suburbs. The time came when we had to go to the airline office in Toronto, in the centre of Toronto, to collect our tickets for the next step in the journey, which was to go to Vancouver and then Seattle. So we got on the tram and we must have been riding. It was some way to get from the suburbs to the centre. We must have been riding about 25 minutes or so on this tram when I felt in my pocket and discovered that I didn't have my passport, which was necessary in order to pick up the tickets. So I had to turn to Douglas and say, Douglas, uh, I'm sorry, I've left my passport in Patrick's apartment. Well, Douglas, who liked to keep a fairly tight schedule when it came to workshops and talks, gave me a somewhat dark look. And of course we had to get up and get off the tram and then catch another tram and go all the way back to Patrick's and I had to ferret around and find my passport. This we did. We then caught another tram and went back towards the centre of Toronto. After about 25 minutes or so, in exactly the same spot as I was looking out the window as we had been when I discovered my uh, absent passport, Douglas felt in his pocket and discovered something. And he turned to me and he said, Colin, I've forgotten my passport. Well, I guess I had a bit of a big smile here because we then had to get off and go all the way back to Patrick's apartment to collect Douglas's passport. And I have to say, when I think back to that little incident, it is with huge affection. I'd like to say a little bit about Douglas's generosity. Uh, I was given his book on having no head uh, when I was uh, 21 for my birthday. And I hitched up from the south coast of England to where Douglas uh, lives, lived in Nacton. And um, because he'd actually kindly put his phone number at the end of the book. So I was able to call him up. And with a friend, uh, we, we hitched up there and spent the weekend with him, which was something he did nearly every weekend. Invited people in who were interested in this particular approach. And uh, it 
mainly at that time it was hippie types, uh, college types like me, uh, who would wash up there. And uh, we would do various workshop activities and Douglas would uh, talk about his insight to us. And uh, they were wonderful times, wonderful memories. And um, one aspect of it was the food. Um, the hippies would sometimes bring a gift of a, uh, a special flan made with uh, organic uh, ingredients or something like that. And, uh, but nobody ever replenished the bread or the cheese or, or, or the basics, you know. And um, I remember Douglas one time saying that uh, he and his son, uh, who I don't think particularly was into headlessness, uh, were staying there and all they had in the larder was a jar of squid and some leftover marmite and everything else had been consumed by the, the, his friends and visitors. And um, so I, I recall that we had a big discussion about it and uh, people thought this was wrong and that, um, and that people should, uh, rather than just bring random items, if anything, uh, that they should contribute something, uh, you know, monetarily. And uh, a big debate ensued about whether, for example, uh, couples would get a reduction on the fee. And, um, uh, and this went on for a while until we all noticed that Douglas had gone missing. And uh, when he came back from what presumably was a walk, uh, he, he came in uh, to, into the midst of us and he said... Um, he said, I've had a wonderful idea. Let's make it free. And we all fell for it because uh, he, he presented it as, as, as such a new, innovative idea. We all fell for it and then, you know, did a double take and thought, oh, well, that's how it's always been. But uh, Douglas would, that was typical of him. Uh, he opened his, uh, his home, you know, for anyone to turn up. And it was, uh, it was really where all the experiments were devised um, by uh, trial and error. People would, would try things out and they would work or not work. And, um, uh, and one, one other thing is that uh, I noticed a couple of times that um, Douglas had washed the headlights and wing mirrors on my car uh, when I later had a car. Um, and he would do little generous practical things like that, uh, you know, which really, uh, you know, told something of the man. And he did admit that uh, he gained out of all these visitors because of, you know, as he said, uh, uh, there was some self-seeking in it, you know, from his point of view, because it was his, his uh, you know, lifelong project. Okay. But, um, uh, yeah, he was, a, he was a really, really generous guy. Thank you. And the first thing that came to my mind when I thought about what would I say, want to say about Douglas was that Douglas was what I think of 24-7 into seeing. That was just... His whole being was completely focused on seeing who you are and showing it to others. And it was amazing. Like any... Of course... He was like all other people, you know, doing all the stuff we always do. But everything, eating, walking, talking, everything was connected in the end and in the beginning for him to seeing. He was so, 
so dedicated to that, and so he completely lived it. Uh, that was Douglas. And um, what I um, liked about uh, coming across Douglas and seeing, when I came across it in London, my only idea about spirituality was, you know, India and gurus and people with long hair and long robes and hugging forever and all kinds of weird things. And then I went to this small workshop with Douglas and saw who I am. And then went down to Necton where he lived. And there was this group, small group of English people all, you know, looked very square somehow and all dressed up and uh, talking politely and drinking tea and talking about, you know, <laughs> the most spiritual things you can think of. And funnily enough, that made it much more real for me, you know, that it didn't come with all this show that somehow used to accompany other things. And um, because it doesn't and it has to be this way really. And um, also Douglas had this wonderful sense of humor which made things always more funny and more fun. And uh, he was truly an extraordinary human being. Extraordinary. I first met Douglas in uh, 1972 when he came with Anne to the Netherlands in um, Advaita Center in the Netherlands. I was at that moment uh, studying in that uh, in the Advaita and uh, they invited him and he had a workshop and I was like flabbergasted because it was all fun and it was easy and I could see it immediately but then afterwards <laughs> uh, I was very happy to have seen that and to have met Douglas and I went to Necton sometimes and every year he came in Holland and he gave the workshops and I was very happy but I was trained as a scientist and as a scientist, you always have to verify what you are investigating. And what I, I had in this seeing was just me seeing the source of everything, being the source and everything in it. But how could I investigate it for others or saying I can verify this for you and I was in the Advaita and Advaita Vedanta as I understood it was about I'm not this I'm not that I'm a source from which nothing comes the seeing was I'm the source and I'm what is out of it. So all those things went on in me and I couldn't, I, I was just split. I was happy to do the seeing, but I had the idea 
I had to verify, I had, had to prove everything. So that cost me about, let's say, 30 years or something like that. And all the way, Douglas was there and he was so genuine and so loving. And every time he did the experiments and they were so joyful and relaxed. And still, I didn't dare to believe that's the thing I was looking for. And it is thanks to Douglas and his, um, the way he always was uh, there if I wanted that or I needed there that. And he was so joyful always and uh, clarity uh, uh, that helped me so much that I'm so happy to have met him and thank you Douglas. Okay. <laughs> Do I start? Douglas, wow, it's been a very important element in my life but I did spend 10 years in India, Osho Rajneesh ashrams and Osho had left his body as they say and I was really settling down to edit his works for the foreseeable future and I came home to England for no very good reason probably a new visa required and I was given by my wife who had found this book falling on her head in the local bookshop the little book of life and death well, by a chap, I read this on having no head before, but it was much too busy building the great city in Oregon, uh, involved in the whole Osho show. So it didn't particularly interest me. Nevertheless, you're on an airplane, so you read it. And I arrived in London gasping for breath. Who is this guy? I must find him. Osho had said, you don't need a new master. I'll be with you all the time. But nevertheless, I was interested to know anybody who knew who they were. And this guy certainly did. So what do I do? I, he's obviously of a considerable age. Maybe he's dead by now. So I write to the public publishers. They give me an address. I write to the address. And quite quickly, a letter came from Douglas giving a list of workshops, essentially. So I go to a workshop down in London and I can just remember it. <laughs> I remember it totally because suddenly here was this chap, um, neat, uh, old beard and things, but no sense of old age at all. And he ran the workshop. And when I looked through the tube, saw there was nothing this end. It explained everything that I've been spending 10 years doing with Osho and in Oregon and everywhere else, all those meditations, which I enjoyed and uh, was happily going along. But suddenly I saw what it was all about, this end of the tube. This is where I am. And I've never lost that wonderful discovery, that sense. It's been with me all along. So that was me. But then, of course, he was so generous. He said, come and see him at any time. And I'm living two or three hundred miles away. It was quite a trip. But I used to go across whenever I could 
and stayed in his house. Um, we were slightly surprised to see clearly somebody like Osho had never been near a, a fireplace or anything and uh, n had no idea how to look after himself because we worshipped him pretty much. Here was Douglas kneeling by the fireplace, stoking the fire. Wow, who is this guy? And then in the evening we used to watch snooker. He seemed to be very keen on the snooker and claimed, much to Catherine's annoyance, that uh, Ronnie O'Sullivan, whatever, was enlightened. There he was, looking with the, <laughs> with the, the cue, clearly enlightened at that moment. It's one of the lovely things about Douglas for me, was that um, seeing who you are, you are enlightened. This awful word which I've been pursuing for ten years in, or in, in, in India and elsewhere. Yeah, when you look here, you are enlightened. Now the work begins. <laughs> and obviously, uh, one's understood what that's meant ever since. So, wonderful evenings, uh, walks on the river, with Douglas, which went on, of course, until right at the end when Catherine and I, and Douglas was limping by now and I was struggling as he walked. So many memories like that. What a, what a lovely friend he was. And he wrote a little thing for me on ball games, which is my other passion. <laughs> and so on. And then Douglas has been a friend ever since and uh, still is. <laughs>